100 of the Stem Cell Podcast, a stem cell pioneer, with that pioneer herself, Dr. Connie Eves. Hey, everyone. We are Dr. Dalon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. As mentioned, this is the 200th episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. We're calling it the Bi-Stemtennial. And we're celebrating <laughs> this milestone by chatting to a very special guest, Dr. Connie Eves from the University of British Columbia. We'll be talking to her about her research on leukemia and breast cancer and the normal tissues in which these diseases originate. But we've also got a surprise up our sleeve in celebration of the Bi-Stemtennial. And eight years on the air, we're giving away three stem cell podcast Bluetooth speakers. To enter the contest, subscribe to the Stem Cell Podcast newsletter at stemcellpodcast.com slash newsletter by September 30th. Winners will be announced in episode 204 on October 19th. Getting back to today's episode, we've got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. Episode 200, hard to believe, right? But first, stem cell technologies would like to introduce you to mammary cell news, covering everything from mammary cell differentiation and characterization to the progression and treatment of breast cancer. Mammary cell news keeps readers current with the latest news, research policy, and events and jobs relevant to the mammary cell community. So check out mammary cell news and the rest of stem cells scientific newsletters at www.mammarycellnews.com. We're going to jump right into it with a really fun story that came out in Cell Stem Cell very recently. The title of this paper is Human Brain Organoids Assemble Functionally Integrated Bilateral Optic Vesicles. Okay, and this is, if you look at the images of this paper, uh, we were talking about it before the show, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, those cartoon brains with the eyes just directly latched onto the brain and a little smile on the brain. Well, that's sort of what this reminded me, okay? There are brain organoids here that are developing these optic vesicles that have bilateral symmetry. So it's almost like they have little rudimentary eye-like structures directly integrated onto these brain organoids. So they've, they've called them OVB organoids, uh, brain organoids engineered to define primordial eye fields. Not a true eye, but it's responsive to light, as we'll discuss in a bit. Um, these are optic vesicles developing from the diencephalon through a multi-step process of organogenesis. And the really cool thing here, I thought this was an assembloid paper when I first looked at these things, because I, I thought to myself, no way. How are you able to add these little eye-like structures in such a symmetric context into these brain organoids? But no, this is de novo. So they used iPSC-derived human brain organoids to develop a differentiation protocol to actually make brain organoids with uh, optic vesicles built in. And so around day 30 of their differentiation process, these things actually start showing up and they keep on developing as visible structures till about day 60. And one thing that they did mention in this paper um, is that the long-term stability of these structures, is it's not there quite yet. And there's also cell line to cell line variability in terms of how well these 
brain organoids with these optic complex structures are able to, you know, are able to develop. So not every cell line has this capacity to make these structures. Okay. But these optic vesicle containing brain organoids or OVB organoids have a have the right cellular components of the optic vesicle, including the corneal epithelial and lens-like cells, retinal pigment epithelia, retinal progenitor cells, even axon-like projections that are connecting with the, the brain side of the organoid, right? So they have synapsin-1, CTIP-positive myelinated cortical neurons, and also even microglia in there, pretty complicated stuff. And the other exciting thing is that they can respond to light. So different light intensities could actually trigger the photosensitive, the photosensitive activity of these OVB organoids. And you can photobleach these organoids and actually kind of reset their light sensitivity. So it's, it's a mind-blowing structure, in my opinion. It's something that's happening de novo a quote unquote, you know, uh, well, we're not going to call it many brains, but we'll call it brain organoids with built in light sensing optic cups, all de novo, not assembloid. It took me a while to, you know, actually understand and accept that point, but this is a de novo structure, man. Really crazy stuff, I gotta say. Cannot be denied. I know you were having a hard time wrapping your head around it, but yeah, no assembloids necessary. This is truly a bombshell. I, I would say, on the level of the the first organoid, the optic cup, I think it's probably fitting here that we have these, you know, optic type structures because it's reminiscent of that kind of bombshell effect. But my only complaint here is a kind of meta uh, complaint that we've been batting around a long time. It's the, the terminology. I mean, <clears throat> granted, I get it at the media level that they're going to come out with crazy titles like tiny human brain grown in lab has eye-like <laughs> structures that see light. Yeah. I mean, it's risky when you put that out there in terms of what kind of response you're going to engender. But I have to put it on the editorial staff too. I mean, Sheila Chari, we got to talk. The title of this paper is Human Brain Organoids Assemble Functionally Integrated Bilateral Optic Vessels, I mean, Vesicles. I mean, that sounds really sciencey, but any lay person reading that I think is going to get stuck right at the beginning with the human brain organoids. I'm still lobbying for a little bit more care and discretion in how mm. we describe these organoids, particularly when they're so charged. I think we could have come up with something more, you know, uh, agnostic maybe, like human neural organoids. It still would be bombshell story. Just don't yeah. have to, to slip the brain idea in there because as soon as you do that, everyone's talking about something that's seeing in the dish. And then you look at the thing and it looks like there's two eyes on a mini brain and suddenly <laughs> everybody's going crazy. So I, I think we need to chill on the terminology, but the science, I mean, wow, Aruna, I, I, I didn't think this, this day would come so quickly. Yeah, it's really impressive. I, I agree with you with the title, but I think regardless of the title, once folks see that image of the brain with the two little optic cups, that captures the imagination, right? I don't, so I don't really think it matters what you're going to call the paper. The science in itself, you know, the science speaks for itself, I would say. Yes, that's fair to say. And it is a, a pretty jarring picture. Um, but I mean, for me, really exciting stuff. And I can only imagine what we're on the cusp of if this is where we are. Uh, so early in the game. I'm still a young man, Arun. Um, but that leads me to the next story. You know, I'm not getting any younger. And, and as we get older, uh, mutations, mutations, mutations. We've been talking about this. There's this idea that we have this entropy. We're all, our inertia toward, 
toward cancer. We're all going to end up a blob of mutation, mutated mass. Maybe not that dramatic, but I mean, the idea is out there and the mutations are constantly occurring. And there's two types, right? There's the mutations that occur during embryogenesis, and those are spread pretty widely across tissues, and you can see them in, in clones. Um, and then there's like somatic mutations that happen over the lifetime, like in the blood. Uh, both of these are commonly referred to as clonal uh, mutations, and the mosaicism that arises from mutated and non-mutated uh, origin tissue, uh, this clonal mosaicism, um, it often emerges early stages during embryogenesis, um, or it follows like in the blood from a, a, a expansion of a early pool. But either way, it has implications towards health and disease pathology because these mutations can be precancerous or pre-pathological, however you want to think of it. Um, in the gonad, this is particularly important because the gonad is, is, is uh, vulnerable on two fronts. One, uh, directly, you can get these germ cell tumors. Um, and second, I think more uh, fraught is this idea that you have a congenital transmission of disease in subsequent uh, generations. And for females, this is appreciable and important. Uh, the, the germline in females is also vulnerable. But in males, it's particularly vulnerable because of the proliferative capacity. Women are born with all the eggs they'll ever have, but men are constantly making new uh, gametes generating around a thousand a second. Huh? What about that, Arun? I don't know about you, but I'm impressed with myself. Um, <laughs> and that's because of spermatogonial stem cells, right? Um, and these spermatogonial stem cells are, of course, subject, like most stem cells, to mutation. And some mutations of spermatogonial stem cells will give us selective growth advantage. Um, and that can lead to some conditions like achondroplasia. But like the more global, general, sperm mosaicism is not really well explored, okay? And so that's where uh, Joseph Gleason, his group at UCSD, they came in to look more generally broadly at sperm mosaicism, had this big story in Cell um, where they recruited cohorts of young and uh, advanced age men who underwent single or repeated sperm sampling. And then they subject, subjected those samples to this 300x coverage whole genome sequencing, which is a state of the art, pretty much complete coverage. Um, and what they showed, I thought was really a big concept uh, advance here. And that is that, the, that there's a lot of clonal mosaic variants in each ejaculate, around 33 in each ejaculate. Um, and this is the key. All of those, almost all of those are detected serially. Like every ejaculate you'll see as you move through time, that they are represented at equal numbers. Uh, and they're all, most of them, not all of them, are pretty much absent from the som somatic tissues. Uh, so what this suggests is that the, these, these uh, clonal mosaicism or this, this phenomenon, clonal mosaicism, it arises during embryonic development. Um, and what they found just running all the numbers, which is kind of scary, is that it uh, certainly contributes to um, a pathologic or pathogenic exonic variant for one in 15 men. So one in 15 men walking around are having a lifelong contribution of these aberrant uh, clonal mosaic sperm to the germline. And, you know, that's significant. One in 15 men, every time they make a baby, that's a significant burden, as they say, on the human population health. So I think it's a big conceptual advance 
um, speaking to maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe we've got to do a lot more screening. Uh, it's like a, a world where everything is IVF is what we're looking at, which is kind of scary and, and depressing, but at least the idea that maybe um, men should have their sperm routinely uh, screened to see if they have this clonal mosaicism endemic uh, if they're one in those, one of those one in 15 men, I think maybe that's one of the upsides here is that you could uh, get a, get a look and, and maybe uh, see which men ought to pursue uh, assisted reproduction. Yeah, it's um, one in 15 is a striking number for sure. But then I would say beyond that, it's one in 15 and then 5% of the sperm from that one in 15, right? And then some of those sperm are just not compatible with life at all. So it is, you know, it's a game of percentages and the percentages do drop. But if you consider the overall human population of 7 billion or whatever, and half of those are men, then it, it does become a bit of a reality. I will say, you know, looping back to the screening that you thought of here, part of the reason that this study was able to take the forefront was because you, you can more easily do this kind of screening with these really deep genome sequencing technologies, like 300x depth coverage that's pretty fantastic so it's a combination of the technology contributing to you know this pretty cool finding yes and i i want to uh, reiterate what you said it's also it's not even that it's that's just to contribute a single uh, pathogenic allele variant right and then you also have the partner which should be able to rescue that so the, yeah. the, the the idea that this would contribute to a lot of pathology out there and germline transmission of genetic disease isn't i think so stark the warning here, but what, what really impressed me is that the stability of these variants, you know, the way we screen right. couples in IVF is we take them both in, we look at their blood and we look at somatic variants. But here it's suggesting that there's another level is that you should actually look at the ejaculate and say, yes, you have these stable clonal mosaic uh, pathogenic variants in your sperm specifically that we don't see in your blood. And so we have to account for those when we're doing any kind of ART. So I think it's just a little bit more information, particularly for couples who are already struggling with infertility. Yeah, just another thing to think about for these folks. Um, really neat study there. You know, it's, it's a numbers game and you could think of it that way. So shifting on from the reproductive side of things to more on the, the bone and the ultimately the blood side before we get into our chat with Dr. Connie Eves, who is of course an expert on all things blood. The next paper I'm gonna talk about is coming from the lab of Charles Chan over at Stanford. First author is Thomas Ambrosi. Aged skeletal stem cells generate an inflammatory degenerative niche. This is a paper coming out in Nature. So we're talking about loss of the skeletal integrity during the aging process. This is something that we all unfortunately deal with. You know, over time, as you get older, your bones become a little bit more brittle and they're not able to really heal themselves as well. And there's a lot of surgical interventions to, to help alleviate that problem. Um, and in fact, one of the folks on this paper is my former um, uh, grad school advisor, Dr. Mike Longacre, who we've talked about on the show previously, who's a surgeon himself and is involved in all things uh, aging and regeneration. So we're talking about the opposing actions of a couple of critical cell types for the bone, the osteoblast and the osteoclast. These are bones, these are the cells that help to generate and regenerate and degrade the, the cells of the bone. Okay, and so there's an intrinsic aging mechanism apparently in the skeletal stem cells that can alter the signaling in the bone marrow niche 
um, then actually skews the differentiation of both the bone and also the blood lineages. So we're looping it back to the hematopoietic stem cells here. And if we're talking about the bone marrow niche, you know, this is a, it's, it's a powerful system and there's a lot going on in there, not just bone, but of course, critically important to blood development as well. So apparently these aged skeletal stem cells have a decreased bone and cartilage forming potential but actually are forming more stromal lineages that can express high levels of this pro-inflammatory uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine. So you're, it's, uh, you're linking inflammation with aging, this whole subfield of inflammaging, quote unquote, as they call it, right? So they did a bunch of single cell RNA sequencing here, and they linked the loss of a diminished transcriptomic diversity of these skeletal stem cells in mice, which can contribute to a change in, in the overall bone marrow niche. So they tried a parabiosis approach where they connected multiple mice, the young mice and the old mice, to see if they could reverse that aging of the skeletal stem cells, but that wasn't actually able to, to happen. Um, but the aged uh, skeletal stem cell lineage actually promoted the activity of the osteoclasts these cells that are invo involved in bone resorption, right? And the uh, ultimately there's a connection to the hematopoietic stem and progenitor population here. And ultimately they're showing that yes, aging is a critical driver and aging of these skeletal stem cells is actually driving hematopoietic aging. So there's a link between the bone and the blood there. So there's a deficient bone regeneration in aged mice and it's not able to be restored through this parabiosis approach, but it could be returned to a youthful level by actually applying a, a combinatorial treatment of growth factors that are known to be really critical for bone generation, inc including the bone morphogenic protein 2 or BMP2 that we know about, and also CSF1, which is something they identified during their transcriptomic analysis, uh, an antagonist for that. So they applied that antagonist and they applied BMP2 to fractures in old mice which can actually reactivate those aged skeletal stem cells and also at the same time reduce the inflammation response, that inflammaging response, right? So they're showing that there is a, a mechanistic connection between the bone and the blood to regulate the skeletal stem cell aging process. And the other great thing, and part of the reason I think Mike Longacre is on this paper, is they have found an approach to actually mitigate and alleviate some of those uh, bone aging phenomenon by using this BMP2 in combination with the C C C uh, CSF1 antagonist to actually help fractures in these aged mice heal a little bit faster. So I'm sure there's already some thought as to a clinical trial of, for this common, common, uh, combination of treatment for maybe helping the bones in older folks who have had uh, you know, fractures or whatnot, helping them to heal a little bit quicker, a little bit better. So uh, a basic study with a lot of application. Yes, basic and sprawling, because I mean, it's everywhere. And I, I don't think, you could avoid that. Of course, there's a nature paper. And when you follow the thread, the answer is like deep, deep in the well. Um, and here that's, I think, illustrated well uh, by this, how they got to hematopoiesis um, and the intersection of hematopoiesis and the aged skeletal stem cells. And to me, it's I'm on two sides of that. One, it's so, I think, fascinating and, and there's so much joy in unpacking the biology. But also it's a little bit disheartening from a therapeutic standpoint because you realize how complex these systems are. And, and really, at the end of the day, aging is really the amalgam of so many 
disrupted processes. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm skeptical, but I, I, the therapeutic approaches that I think have been developed are maybe band-aids in terms of like this and still useful, very metaphorically band-aids here with the BMP and the CSF. But I, I'm, I'm, I still am waiting for the silver bullet to get at the systemic elements of aging. But of course, that's a ridiculous uh, expectation. And I'm going to be waiting until I myself am a very old man, I'm guessing. No, that's totally fair. You're absolutely right. Aging is a complex process. And we even talked about it on the last show. Remember, we talked about VEGF and how VEGF is so critically important to the aging process too. So that's the whole circulatory side of things that that's, I don't think that was even considered here, the role of the VEGF in the aging process. You know, So there's a lot of key drivers. And if you're thinking about using BMP as a therapeutic, that in itself, it's kind of tricky, right? BMP is one of those TGF beta um, super family ligands, which has a lot of power in itself. And is also critically important for regulating cancer too. So it's just a lot of things to think about when it comes to the aging process. That is for sure. Hopefully they'll figure it out before I'm dead, Arun, but uh, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting gray over here. Uh, but you know, there's always the parabiosis and the whole, the whole vampirism idea that I'm really invested in. And that brings me to my last story. It's the blood. It's not a parabiosis story, but it is about, I think, renewal, you know, and that's what uh, all these regenerative stories are about renewal. Um, and part of the issue with hematopoietic stem cell self-renewal and notwithstanding the whole trying to get the true HSC from IPS cells, et cetera, but just getting them to self-renew uh, in vitro, ex vivo is a real challenge when you take them out of the niche. And we'll probably talk with Dr. Eves about that a bit. But, um, you know, they're still cracking away trying to figure out a, a, a way to maintain hematopoietic stem cell self renewal. And part of that is uh, a process that's called proteostasis. Okay, proteostasis, it's uh, the dynamic regulation of a balanced functional proteome. Okay. And uh, hematopoietic stem cells, they like proteostasis and they, the young adult hematopoietic stem cells, in fact, have a lower protein synthesis rate than other hematopoietic stem cells. And that's necessary um, because it's shown that if a modest, if you have a modest increase in protein sense, uh, synthesis, you disrupt the proteostasis and you impair self-renewal in vivo. This has been shown. All right. Um, and what uh, Robert uh, Signer's group here, he was part of the, the uh, groups that showed that young adult hematopoietic stem cells are really have this facet of the proteostasis to them that's important for self-renewal. His group, again, at UCSD, they're doing good work at UCSD. They looked into this and showed that the ex vivo culture of a hematopoietic stem cells, it rapidly increases the amount of protein synthesis, both in mouse and human hematopoietic stem cells, thereby disrupting proteostasis. And what that does is it results in accumulation of this uh, heat shock factor one, okay? The heat, uh, primary response to protein stress or disruption of prote proteostasis is activation of this heat shock response. And one of the factors is master regular HSF1, um, it is accumulates in the nucleus of cultured HSCs. If you get rid of it, then you really impair the long-term multi-lineage reconstitu reconstitution of these cells on transplant. Um, and then what they show th that if you enhance uh, HSF1 activation, 
by using these small molecule inhibitors called uh, of HSP90 or TRIC, um, called tenespamycin and TRIC inhibitor, whatever, that doesn't matter what they're called. They use these inhibitors and they show that uh, you can like suppress that protea, protein synthesis, um, you can rescue proteostasis, and then you get sustained ex vivo HSC maintenance. Um, and then as a little tack on, they show that in vivo, uh, as I, mice approach middle age, it actually is uh, a factor. HSF1 gets activated, um, and that leads to like a little burst of increased HSC activity, I guess, uh, as you know, midlife crisis type thing for a mouse. Um, but, you know, it's a pretty basic story. It's a big, big journal, Cell Stem Cell, because I think, you know, this is one of these in the series of, of small molecules and recipes that have been proposed uh, to increase self-renewal of hematopoietic stem cells. And the output here clinically is huge because, you know, cord blood, which is now uh, first line for a lot of um, hematopoietic uh, progenitor cell transplantation, allogeneic, um, you know, usually you have to combine multiple bags and that can lead to a lot of pathology. Uh, and so to, to be able to increase hematopoietic stem cell numbers, both from cord blood or mobilized from a patient's own blood or marrow would be a major boon. So this, it's a good kind of recipe story with a little bit of mechanism that gets a big splash in cell stem cell because the clinical output is so high. Yeah, absolutely. And the ultimate goal is really promising, right? Anytime you can increase the number of HSCs across the board, that's, that's necessary, required for so many different treatments down the road. Uh, one thing to consider here is the transition from the mouse to the human, right? So uh, their human cord blood, the, the, you're going to have to re recapitulate a lot of these experiments in, in the human system as well. And of course, there's a species-specific difference there. But anytime you're also talking about heat shock proteins and HSF, they have a lot of different functions, all right? I always think of these heat shock proteins as kind of ambiguous in terms of the, the cellular signaling that they can influence down the road. It seems like to me, these papers come up quite a bit whereby, you know, heat shock proteins and heat shock regulating factors can influence say H, you know, hematopoietic stem cells and like other organ systems. They're just so ubiquitous across the board, right? So I think you really, before taking this into a human context, you really got to dive deep into the mechanism and actually figure out uh, not only how is this protein, how is this factor is influencing this particular lineage in this particular system, but across the, across the other systems in the body as well. You got to know exactly what's going on here. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I will say on, on the other side of that, that um, the one boon here, well, to your point as well, is that it's not even just the HSF1, but it's these two inhibitors that they, the way they work is by inhibiting cofactors of HSF1. Um, yeah. So like, you know, you can imagine the off-target effects and the possibilities there. But the one uh, upside here is that, and this is why I guess it's such an emphasis on ex vivo, is that none of this has to really be administered in the body. This is, this is something you take out ex vivo, ramp them up, and then put them back in. Still important to consider what the downstream consequences of inhibiting heat shock factor, you know, in the cells themselves, maybe there's some residual factors there that when it gets into the body also can affect other compartments. So yes, there's a lot of care that needs to be taken before putting into the clinic, but add it to the list of uh, secret sauce that people have postulated and proposed 
for hematopoietic stem cell self renewal. Maybe we can review the history with Connie Eves, but then the show would probably be three, four hours long. We'll have to get the highlights. But before we get to that interview, which I can't wait for, I have a brief message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies has been in the field of hematopoietic stem and progenitor research for over 20 years. And during that time, they've learned a thing or two or three. Visit stemcell.com slash hemahub for educational resources to help you further your research on hematopoiesis and hematological malignancies. And now without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, everybody, I am delighted today to introduce for our special 200th episode, Bicentennial, the legend, Dr. Connie Eves who is distinguished scientist at the Terry Fox Laboratory and the BC Cancer Research Institute, also professor in the Department of Medical Genetics at the School of Biomedical Engineering, U University of British Columbia. Dr. Eve's research focuses on leukemia and breast cancer and the normal tissues in which these diseases originate. Her pioneering research in basic blood stem cell biology led to a breakthrough in, tre in treatment for leukemia her lab uses defined culture systems, gene transfer strategies, and genome-wide gene expression analyses to elucidate the molecular mechanisms underlying causes of variable stem cell behavior. Dr. Eves, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. So am I. Very much have been looking forward to this since we got you on the docket. Um, it's really an honor to have you on the show again. You've been a, lead, a leader in the field since the 60s, and decade after decade, you continue to move the needle, reflecting on your many contributions and the pace of advance in the field, which is faster and faster as the years go on. What do you think was the real turning point, in your opinion, uh, in our treatment collectively of leukemia and other malignancies? Um, that's an interesting question. I think it's appropriate that you've separated them. Uh, really, I think the earliest big advance in the treatment of cancer in general was the discovery of uh, ionizing radiation by the Curies uh, and its ability to kill cells. And that succeeded surgery as a huge advance. Um, leukemia, um, really probably the, the biggest advance came with the recognition that chemotherapeutic agents, which really grew out of uh, using mustard gas in the world wars, um, could be used also to kill cells. And then the atomic bomb stimulating research in the effects of radiation on the blood farming system and its ability to be protected by transplants of, of cells from normal bone marrow sources leading to the use of bone marrow transplants in the early 1970s, really, when they got going. So those are the sort of the biggies for someone my age. Um, and uh, of course, 
the younger you are, the more recent you pay big advances. So I'll just leave it at, there, at that. One could then take sequential steps, learning DNA was big, uh, gene therapy, the ability to manipulate cells. Many, many things have happened since then. The most recent of which is CRISPR. And that's just entering uh, clinical practice. The immune system has gone up and down at least three or four times as a huge advance. And now it's in its prime again. And uh, I guess the biggest new thing is that the immune system is everything. It's all the immune cells and then everything they interact with. So, you know, you can't get better than that. Um, what else can I say? I think that on the horizon is our uh, growing appreciation as a scientific community that every cell is different. Every cell is different and every cell gains mutations every time it divides. And so our historical anatomical concept of biology is getting eroded by a appreciation of, of cells and people and organisms more as ecosystems. And a lot of the ideas of ecology and psychology and neural networks, these are all coming home just in trying to understand one cell and why it is the way it is today and why it is different tomorrow. And, you know, nothing is fixed in time. Yeah, definitely. And and speaking of new technologies that have been able to change the game, I mean, one thing that we talk about a lot here on this podcast is induced pluripotent stem cells. And it's something that we've been talking about a long time now. But as far as I can tell, the full potential of using iPSC-derived hematopoietic stem cells hasn't hasn't yet been realized. And Perhaps, you know, it, it, this is definitely something that you're working on, but the bona fide derivation, the derivation of bona fide hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent stem cells that can stably last long-term and ultimately be used for clinical translation, it's still something that we're working towards. And I'm not directly involved in the hematopoietic stem cell field, but it, it seems like there's a lot of work in this area, you know, recently, so many great publications detailing the derivation of these cells from induced pluripotent stem cells and pluripotent stem cells. But at least from my understanding, we haven't started routinely using iPSC-derived HSCs for clinical therapy. So it's a bit of a naive question as somebody who's not directly involved in the field, but what's stopping us both from the basic science perspective and the clinical perspective from actually using these PSC-derived HSCs, hematopoietic stem cells for therapy? That's a great question. And you're spot on. I think the first thing I would say is it highlights the fact that we don't understand development yet. We're only just beginning to scratch the surface from the time of the fertilized egg, or even before, um, until an individual is born and then goes through the aging, the growth and maturation and aging process. We have a new level of appreciation of how complex 
all of those steps are. And just as I was saying before, the heterogeneity of cells at any given moment in time is even more complicated by the dimension of development. And so we can't think of hematopoietic stem cells anymore as a singular entity that you can describe with a colored ball. Um, these are evolving animals. These are animals. I'm always saying to the trainees, you know, remember a person is a collection of amoebae. The cells around <coughs> multicellular organisms arose from single cell organisms that lived in water, right? And, and they had, each cell had a way of taking in nutrients, taking in uh, oxygen and getting rid of carbon dioxide and vice versa, and excreting toxic products that were leftover materials, had a genome, you know, it was a, like a little organism. It was a little organism. And then they came together and made multicellular organisms, and they just had to scale many of those um, um, bits of cellular or life, life supporting machinery. So we have a way of taking food in to feed all the cells because not every cell can access food. Same for oxygen, we have to get rid of waste products, but, but each cell itself is still like that. And each cell is evolving over time to, to exist as an organism because it's being battered and fed and stimulated by the outside. And we, we just have grown up always uh, with the principle of make everything as simple as you can so that you can understand it. And when you have reached the limit of utility of that model, you have to make it more complicated. Hmm. And now we're reaching the stage of complication that even our, our minds haven't got used to uh, getting our heads around it. And even worse, the scale at which we are being challenged to appreciate things in more complicated ways is outgrowing our ability to adapt to it. So when I grew up, when I grew up, iPS cells did not, they did not only not exist, they could not exist. Mm -hmm. Development was a one-way street. Now we understand that of course it's not a one-way street. Everything can be changed from one thing into another. It just doesn't happen all the time. And we don't know what the constraints are or even the processes are. We're just beginning to explore them, but even the exploration is challenging because nothing is stable. It's only sort of stable. Hmm. And, and we can't, especially with people, we can't play with the organism. We can try to mimic parts of it, but you know, we, the closer we get, the more we're not allowed to do it. So it's very challenging. And uh, I think the promise is that we understand that we can now use the brain systems of computing power to augment ours. And our 
our children and their children are growing up um, comfortable with complexity in ways that even you guys are not comfortable. <laughs> and certainly I'm not comfortable. But you know, one of the nice things, well, this is getting off topic, but one of the nice things about getting older is you don't care so much. Your career <laughs> is not so dependent on, on what you're gonna do tomorrow or next year. And so you can relax a little bit and enjoy some of this and, and even dwell on it and contemplate it. But get a little far off topic, so I'll stop yakking about that. You seem pretty comfortable from where I'm sitting, Dr. Eves. I, I think you, uh, you've conceptualized it well there. And, and hearing you talk about the, the challenges facing HSCs there and, and self-renewal and the bona fide HSC from IPS cells, I get this idea of like Schrodinger's cat, right? You can't observe it and renew it at the same time. But it, 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 it's a great example also of uh, scientists and I guess maybe the media and, and medicine's tendency to underestimate the obstacles to clinical translation, right? We've been trying to figure out adult HSC self-renewal forever um, since you got into the game. And when mouse and human embryonic stem cells were first arrived, differentiation from embryonic rudiments, that was the answer, right? And then a similar story for cardiac and neural cells from embryonic stem cells, that's the answer, right? Um, gene therapy, same thing, debacle. And now we're just finally fighting our way back. Now, here we are on the cusp of like the next revolution of therapies, whether it's CRISPR or genomics or personalized medicine. Uh, and I'm really feeling it. Maybe it's because I'm getting old. I'm feeling like this is it. This is a tipping point. What do you say about that? Do you think there is a, a tipping point where all these technologies kind of converge because they're all so close, like a biomedical singularity, so to speak? Or, or do the scales shift slowly, decade over decade? Well, that's a great question too. Um, you know, tipping points, like most things of that sort of major consequence are generally speaking things that you look at retrospectively. They're much more difficult to appreciate when they're happening. So, I mean, if, you know, a volcano goes off, there's some appreciation of it at the moment, but many, many things like that are, are changes that occur of that ilk are not possible to perceive in that way at the moment. Hmm. You, you perceive them retrospectively and, and how they've played out. We tend to think of it more, um, we tend to think of, all our human activities in the context of our experiences as human beings. And yet we're thinking of science as something not necessarily fixed in, in the animal experience of humanity. We're thinking we need to think of it more in the physical experience of the universe. And those are, we did not evolve as physical components of the universe, uh, you know, locally. We evolved as animals with animal urges and evolution and all that stuff. Uh, not that the universe hasn't evolved, but we, we don't tend to think of it that way. And now we're talking about complexities that, that are of the same ilk 
as the evolution of the universe. And we, we, we did not evolve to, to deal with that. And so it's hard for our, I think the way our brains are programmed to, to integrate that um, easily. That may happen because we don't make use of all of our brains and we haven't, you know, 500 years ago, we didn't stimulate them the way we are now. So it's hard for me to know. And, you know, we talked about science fiction 30 years ago, you know, you plug your brain into a computer every night and stuff. That was science fiction. I don't know that that is science fiction anymore. What's the, the one and a half year old sitting on the plane seat in front of me doing with an iPad? You know? <laughs> and you read that, you know, if you sing to babies in utero, there's an influence. So, you know, there's all sorts of things we don't understand yet about how we could evolve and how we could appreciate what you call tipping points. Um, and sometimes our, our sense of what is the challenge is all wrong, you know? Uh, that we haven't perceived the, the universe of that challenge in, in the right way. And uh, I don't, you know, I often try to explain things with analogies because how else are you gonna explain something to someone who doesn't understand something or wants clarification if you don't give them an analogy because they don't understand the thing in the first place. So, um, you know, you, you need to think of things that are, are different that you do understand like music or, or other creative areas about how, how, how tipping points are going to be appreciated and driven. Personally, I yeah. think we'll be able to exploit the use of cells without giving them labels. Uh, in ways that we haven't anticipated and don't seem likely. I mean, there have been recent described breakthroughs in making many, many, many hematopoietic stem cells defined by their ability to repopulate a mouse uh, with chemicals. So, you know, maybe that will supersede the use of iPS cells, or maybe that will get cross-applied or maybe some uh, manipulation will be appreciated and maybe there will be some downside to it. Or maybe you will learn, I would hope you might learn, you guys, probably not in time for me. What is the aging process? Never mind development, what about aging? <clears throat> you can stop, <clears throat> excuse me, aging, then uh, you might not need more stem cells. So, you know, the context of the problem needs to be understood better and the context of the solution needs to be understood better. Hmm. All out there, all gonna happen. Right. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's hard to know if you're living in a tipping point, right? It's That's for historians to decide, I suppose. You know, it almost seems like everything that we do all these new technologies serve as their own tipping points. And so you talked about evolution, evolution as humanity as a species, but certainly there's been a, an unbelievable, unimaginable evolution of technologies 
over the last even half half century, and uh, especially in even the last 20 years. So, I mean, there's no secret that these technologies have been so instrumental in helping the stem cell field explode over the last couple of decades. Um, and in particular, those technologies that have intersected really naturally with the field and have accelerated stem cell biology. I'm talking about like organoids, CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing, genome sequencing, single cell sequencing, all these amazing new technologies that we always talk about. But if you had to, you know, I, I want to put you on the spot again here, just like what Dalon did. If you had to pick one technology, just a single technology that you think has been particularly game-changing for the work that you do and the work that the field does, what would it be? And why are you so excited about that technology? Well, I would break that into two parts. I would say if I had to look out there at what I thought was the biggest game changer, um, I would say IPS in the last little while would be IPS cells. Mm. Um, CRISPR is more recent. So I don't think we've begun to see what the impact of that will be. Uh, it's obviously also a game changer, but it's a kind of derivative of manipulating genes. You know, I was a young scientist when the first genes were stuck into mammalian cells, and that was considered revolutionary. Um, and CRISPR is a kind of further modification of all that. Of course, it all started with bacteriophage, you know, sticking genes into bacteria which was being pioneered when I was a student. So when I went to lectures, that was being lectured about that. That was considered, you know, a tipping point. So these, these things all build on other things, but the concept of development being reversible, that was pretty novel. And that has changed, everybody takes it for granted now. But I was trained that that was, not possible. It was like death. Yeah. You know, where there's one road down and it ended in death, and that was it. And now we know that it's not it. I mean, death is, we haven't got rid of that yet, but that's not necessarily impossible. We haven't talked about that, but I think, you know, humanity needs to think about that, just like you know, they're going to kill the universe before they kill everybody. They're going to keep people alive, but kill the universe or kill the earth that we live on, probably. Anyway, um, so then you said in my own research. So I decided I was not going to be the person who led the group that would understand how to make cells that were defined as hematopoietic stem cells from IPS cells or ES cells. I dabbled in that area. And even I have a graduate student right now who is trying to bring her thesis together, who started off prompted by two papers published about five years ago, maybe a little more, that said, if you put IPS cells or ES cells, I guess, into an immunodeficient mouse, you could, you could generate bona fide hematopoietic stem cells that would at least from humans repopulate an immunodeficient mouse, which is our current 
experimental definition. Um, that, so I thought, oh my goodness, we're gonna take off from there. And we, like many other people, have never been able to reproduce that. It's been completely negative. You can generate cells that are phenotypically similar, but they're not functionally active. And there are other deficiencies in, in the cells that you can detect functionally in terms of their in vivo behavior. So I said, I'm not gonna solve that problem. That's a core developmental problem. And I haven't worked on development in, as, a, as a major obsession. So for me, it's more, um, how do you understand, well, what's become an obsession with me the last decade is how do you understand making a normal cell become a malignant cell? And I would just digress for a moment and say, there is no such thing as a stem cell anymore because of iPS cells. It's a developmental state. So every cell is a stem cell. That's the beauty of the phrase. It is everything. It is everything and you can't always make it the way you want. So what other playground would you wanna be in? Because you can choose, you know, what kind of cake you want to make and become good at it and then know that better than anything else rather than say I'm going to make every kind of recipe in the universe. So, so that's my obsession. It's trying to go deeper and deeper into what makes a cell behave with the properties of being able to make more and more of itself and still make normal progeny that behave normally when you put them in a sort of in vivo environment. And then what can you do to that? And it becomes malignant. And when is it malignant? We're learning that it isn't black and white either. It's like getting angry. When are you crazy and need to be put in a penitentiary? because you're doing things that are unacceptable. And when are you just angry because you, you know, got some bad news and you have a hyperactive testosterone? And, and when are you just, you know, feeling angry, but you're not expressing it? We're learning that biological behavior has these gradations. It's not, you're not a stem cell today, normal, and a malignant stem cell tomorrow. And tumors are made up, of, they're like tissues. They're made up of all, mostly of cells that are not gonna do anything. They just clog up the works. So it's a very interesting new way of thinking about tissue. And I've always been interested in quantifying cell behavior and trying to relate that to what are the molecules that are happening in cells? What are they doing? And what are the molecules that are coming from the outside that are influencing that? And so I affiliate with people who are experts in those areas. 
because I can't possibly be expert in all those things. And I love being able to be part of the mixture. So I can learn things about how tissues develop over time, follow cells over time, because I love that. I love growing things. And many people who work in the molecular arena or in the bioinformatic arena, they have very, what I would call short attention spans. They want their answers right away. They don't have the patience to wait for six months for something to happen, but they love to interact with someone who, who provides that to them for nothing. So it's a great trade-off. And fortunately, I'm in the minority. So I get to work with many people <laughs> and, or not many people, but enough people that I think we can bring something to bear on the issue. And I'm also old enough that I, I don't have to be in a big hurry, as I was saying before. And I can recognize that I can't do anything. I can look at a cell and say, that's a happy cell, but you know that really doesn't count for a lot anymore. I can smell whether something looks like it's promising from just having had the experience of seeing data before. But I can't go in the lab and do anything. So I depend on working not just with people who have more experience than I do in areas that we want to marry together, but also with trainees who are driven by curiosity and obsession with finding out some kind of thing. And so that also dictates the kinds of problems that we work on. And in the end, there's so much to learn, it doesn't matter because there's always something to find out that's new. There's always more we don't know. Yeah. Uh, although less now, since you've been on the scene, Dr. E. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I've opened up more things. And you know, a lot of, advances are making uh, systems available so people can make use of them and take them to somewhere new. Right. And so the reason I think you say nice things about me is because I've done some of that. A lot of people are impatient more, well, I'm pretty impatient, but um, a lot of people don't appreciate that the biggest advances come from taking the time to make a new system. You can't just take what exists and cross apply them. That, that ignores the fact that the people who generated those systems did it because they were smart and patient to, to develop them to answer a question. And so the obvious questions they've already answered they didn't wait around for the rest of the world to think of all the obvious things to do. And so if you just come in and find out about it and think you're gonna do something obvious, that's already been done. You have to start and work hard to think of something new or marry it to some new problem and take time to develop it. Yes. Don't get me on that or I'll start talking about funding. Funding is all about funding what is obvious. I uh, know we've, we've had this discussion on the show. We just talked about it last week. We talked about it with uh, Hans Clevers. The funding apparatus isn't necessarily the solution right now. But I mean, you're talking, you're dancing around an idea that I 
also love, you know, in terms of the one, the central dogmas, and that's the most exciting thing for me in science is when the central dogmas come down. But also for me, the other thing is the hack. And I think you're kind of alluding to the hack, um, you know, taking this, these, these systems, these things that have been well fleshed out and then applying them in a way that actually makes a difference in people's lives clinically. This is really well illustrated as you alluded to earlier again with CAR T therapies. And I know you've been around long enough to see all the many generations of immunomodulatory uh, therapies, but I, I would say that this is really revolutionized treatment, at least of hematological cancers, now even being leveraged towards solid tumors. But generally speaking, you know, you as a hematologist recognize, I'm sure that uh, heme, it's the testing ground for so many of these hacks, you know, it's hematology and medicine. It's like, it's the perfect hack, you know, hackathon all day with the blood in medicine. Um, over the decade, you've seen, done a few yourself, I'm sure. What, what are some highlights for you of how we've hacked the hematological system towards a positive clinical endpoint? Uh, well, we've touched on a lot of those already. Um, uh, transplantation, control of uh, understanding uh, that transplants coming to the understanding just to get onto your immune uh, angle is not about killing all the tumor cells, all the leukemic cells, and then replacing the marrow with new marrow because you've killed off everything. It's, it's about getting primitive cells in to make the new person tolerant and providing also immune cells that will really um, do the major task of getting rid of the residual leukemic cells, either at the time of transplant or later on when you supplement giving back um, immune cells, T cells. So, so that was a, a huge step forward. Um, first of all, the idea of transplants at all, so that you could give uh, what were thought to be lethal therapies, have a big impact on a disease that wasn't localized, like, a, like a, what radiotherapy was really designed to do. And then taking advantage on learning by mistake that if you got rid of all the immune cells in the graft, it didn't do so well. Twins, uh, identical twins didn't do so well. Um, and, and then gene therapy coming along, um, at least experimentally, first in mice and then in people, and then getting into trouble understanding that we didn't appreciate the genetics and now trying to manipulate that. I would say those are some of the highlights. I left out chronic myeloid leukemia when I was trained, when Ellen and I were trained. Chronic myeloid leukemia was a disease of a leukemia that took over the entire marrow, got rid of all the normal marrow, it wasn't there, most of the time it wasn't there anymore. And the only way that you could treat it was to replace it. So that's why bone marrow transplants were so prevalently used for chronic myeloid leukemia. And then occasional patients 
had signs of normal cells, but people thought that that was sort of an, uh, the unusual situation. And then we started to culture the cells under conditions that were developed originally by Mike Dexter in Manchester, and then uh, improved by Joel Greenberger, uh, Greenberger in, uh, when he was a postdoc in California under Henry Kaplan, so that it was adapted for, for human cells using the addition of hydrocortisone, which basically keeps the macrophages under control and allows the cultures to work. So we started adapting that and tried it immediately on all the different leukemias. And the big surprising result was that chronic myeloid leukemia cells very often disappeared in the culture and normal cells, normal clonogenic cells appeared. And sometimes in very large numbers, like, like a normal marrow. And so, and, and prevalently, not always, but often. And so that sort of alerted people to the idea that they had thought these very primitive cells didn't exist because you couldn't see them. But if you started using technologies that could look at very rare cells, now you could appreciate that they were there. Of course, that concept was not new to us because we had come from a field that had focused on looking at rare cells. So we were primed already to, to pay attention to an observation like that. And then that started uh, the rest of the world in thinking about therapies that would, um, that would call forth those cells and use other ways of trying to uh, get rid of the leukemic population. So the first big one was interferon and then came mobilization and turned out you could mobilize these cells and collect them in the peripheral blood and so on and so forth. So that's another example of an advance in, in how we think about leukemia. And now, as I said to you, I'm obsessed with the idea of producing it. That's not a new idea. Uh, John Dick was obsessed with that idea back when he started in, in the 80s um, because the idea was you could genetically manipulate mouse cells and the most people have taken off with that. In fact, they dominate the world now. They think the mouse models are the test models of the century. Whereas some of us think, well, they're not. Mice are too different and they, they've been designed to give you uh, malignancies. That's why inbred strains of mice were, were created in the first place back in the early 1900s. And so they have a propensity to get tumors. People are not like that. They don't have a propensity to get tumors. We've evolved not to get tumors, at least not early on. And so it's much harder, but it turns out it's not impossible. In fact, with the tools that we have today, it's becoming easier and easier. And some of us like me who started <clears throat> a few years ago have landed on opportunities. I think in another few years, many, many people will be doing that because the ease of accessing these cells and manipulating them is all advancing at one hell of a rate. 
So I think many, many new things will come from that approach to understanding leukemia and manipulating it when it's trying to develop, when it's just developing, learning what those steps are, modulating the immune system, modulating how cells age, all this side product of inflammatory reactions that we know increase with age. How do we control those? It's kind of like, you know, changing your diet, except that that's so crude and so silly. It hasn't proven to work very well, although everybody knows obesity is a bad thing. So, you know, having donuts every day, not a good idea, but it's not gonna cure breast cancer. Um, we just need more sophisticated understanding of these, of these processes. But it's all out there. It's all doable. It is all doable. And I think we got to highlight the folks who are going to be doing the science in the future. And those are certainly the trainees. And you've had a tremendous number of exceptional trainees over the years. And you've been a champion of trainees in the stem cell field for quite some time now. So I'm somebody trying to make that jump to become an independent PI. And I'm all too familiar with the pros and cons of the modern, modern academic training process, right? But I'm wondering, what are your thoughts in terms of ways we can better facilitate the development of early career scientists and in part, encourage them to still pursue this career in spite of all the hardships and difficulties that we've all documented that we all lament about in academia. So why should students stick around and, you know, stay in academia and, you know, strive to become somebody like Dr. Connie Eves? Well, you're never going to become like me because the world <laughs> has moved on. You know, the challenges and the opportunities are completely different. Uh, but why should people want to pursue science? Science is a, a, a little bit too broad. We've historically gone into science academically, I think for two reasons. One is the pr premier reason is we're curious. We want to understand something we don't understand. It's no different from a musician wanting to become a musician. It's in their being and they feel that that has a stronger appeal. It's like falling in love with somebody. You know, there's not just one person ever in the universe that you can fall in love with. But when, you, when it happens, and it happens dramatically, you usually don't have a lot of trouble recognizing it and you give in to it. Not always, but you know what I'm trying to say. So, so we have these inclinations and opportunities present that, that, uh, that put them in front of us and we make decisions. So to me, the biggest driver to, to do science or become scientifically educated is because you're, you want to understand the universe around you or in biology, the biological universe around you. And you want to be able to contribute to understanding it in a way that benefits mankind and the universe in some way. Because most of us are driven by these positive influences. The other reason for doing it is because uh, you've been raised in an environment that teaches you that this is how 
uh, our humanity will improve and increase and there'll be jobs and you can do it through that vehicle. I think those are the two main drivers why people go into science. I think it's how science is playing out in terms of people's lives who, who go into that training is changing because we've become much more politically controlled in how our society has to work because there are much larger communities of people and we have a kind of more democratic principle. We don't have a king and, you know, king says kill all those people because I don't like them or they're not doing what I want. And, and that makes it, we haven't learned how to, how to exercise that kind of democracy. In fact, it isn't even in our evolution. You know, that's not how herds of elephants and wolves behave. So, um, or anthills or other large communities. So we have to figure it out and we haven't figured it out. Um, but, and we're going through a process now where it's almost counteractive. It's, it's trying to appeal to a group of people who don't really have the remotest understanding of where we are really at in the scientific world. The kind of conversation that we're having now, you couldn't go out and stand in the corner of Hyde Park and have a whole bunch of people come and listen to you because you're talking out of context. So how do we bridge that gap? Or maybe we are, maybe our five-year-olds are now entering that and we don't understand because they haven't grown up yet. So that's the first part of the question that you asked, best I can answer it. How do I think about training? So I was, uh, had the, I think in retrospect, the great fortune of being the child of a professor of mathematics. So he was a person who entered in his uh, university life to become a mathematician, to play in the playground of the purest form of mathematics you could imagine. I didn't have the remotest idea of anything that he did or understand it or anything. But what came through, I think, for me was learning the power of quantitative thinking and the importance of logic. And I think we've kind of lost that a little bit. So if you come to my lab meetings, you will hear me say almost every time we have a conversation, think of what is the question you're trying to ask? And what is it that you're trying to measure that answers the question that you really are trying to ask? You're always thinking of an experiment that you wanna do because you know how to design that experiment. And you're gonna end up measuring something that you learned how to measure, but you haven't figured out whether what you're going to measure is going to yield you data that answers the question that you're originally supposed to be interested in or have even formulated carefully. And over and over, we go through that cycle because I think children are not growing up in an environment that grounds them in quantitative thinking and the limits of quantitative thinking. There's no such thing as zero. I remember being 
in a family of that. But you know, I don't think kids are growing up with that. There is no such thing as zero. And everything has a limit of sensitivity, top and bottom. So, so these are the basic notions. Then you can learn formula, just like you learn how to play a video game. That's a piece of cake. It's younger you are, the easier it is. And you know, I told you I didn't want to learn how to use earphones. <laughs> you know, it's silly. I can learn how to use earphones. It's just I have to concentrate on that. So what do you like to do? Do what you do what you like to do best and learn everything that you need to know to be able to do that. And sometimes it means learning new stuff. But the, the earlier you learn complex notions, the better. That's why you're having a little trouble because you didn't learn it when you were two, probably, I assume. But the kids are now, the kids are now, it's just they're learning through a vehicle that is not as useful as it could be. Right. Um, yeah. So that'll evolve. And then why don't they teach R in grade one? The notion of how you add 14 and 14 and get 28, a lot of kids have a lot of trouble with that. A lot of kids have the trouble with why is something that looks like that pronounced buh and something that looks like that is pronounced duh and who cares? Why is that important? Well, it turns out it's pretty important if you say bad or bad. But, you know, these are, I think, just as difficult concept as learning to pro program is actually like running a video game. It's like designing a video game. Kids, they learn to play chess. I learned to play chess when I was four. Our grandkids, they're playing chess too when they're four. Why aren't we exploiting that conceptual framework? I plugged my kid into uh, Adobe Premiere two years ago, and now he's a madman on it. He's editing like a fool. But uh, yeah, to your point, uh, you just got to find the interest, right? A lot of the trainees come up to me at the early, early stage. They come out to me with their hand out. They say, what should I do? I say, what do you want to do? But um, I think it's a, it's a good uh, learning experience on both sides. We got to program these kids on how to ask the questions, right? You know, if they find the interest, we can give them a, a, a font of tools and techniques. They just have to come up with the with the curiosity and the, and the great questions. Um, we've had some pretty, pretty tough questions on this interview, Connie, and you nailed them all. Thank you for sharing all these insights. Before we let you go, we have a couple last peripheral questions, um, a little science related, uh, maybe not. What, what's uh, one hobby first? What's one hobby that you always wanted to pursue, but were never able to because you were so deep into the, to the hematology? Um, I don't think there are too many. I've been asked that question before. It's like your tipping point question. To me, if you really wanted to do something, you would do it. So I find that it's a little um, difficult to answer because it's outside my paradigm of how I define things. But you know, when I was young, I was always in a big rush. I always thought I knew everything I wanted. Um, and I was, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say encouraged, 
Anyway, I took piano lessons, okay? And I love music. I was brought up on classical music. I love classical music. I now like almost all music, although I had, I had to learn about it later. Um, and now I regret that I didn't become a very good piano player. And I didn't like the rigidity of learning it with the teachers I had. And it was never fun. And I was never good enough, fast enough. Uh, but I, I feel it. I would have loved to be a singer, but I don't think I have the voice to be a great singer. But I love voice. So I think I could express myself by playing the piano or the violin if I really knew how to do it, but I never had the time because it was lower priority, so it didn't happen. I don't think it's gonna happen. I think most of the things I really like and want, I have, I do. And I feel very satisfied. I love to garden. You wanna know things I do outside. Um, I always wanted to have children. I got four of them. Now I got 11 grandchildren, you know, it's over the top. It's greed at work. You've done it all. Uh, I will say on the musical note, it's probably best for the world and uh, those around me that I, I haven't been musically inspired. But Arun likes to play the guitar. Partner, come on. It's not ah. too late for you. You don't want to, Connie has some minor <laughs> regrets in her life related to piano. You could get on the guitar and sew that up, get it off the bucket list. Last question for you, Connie. What, what's the biggest uh, misconception about science that you'd like to correct? Oh, I think that it is somehow something that doesn't include everybody. To me, science is based on understanding, wanting to understand, wanting to understand at a level that you can do something productive to change something you don't like or, or you think is a problem that you can contribute to. And I think we don't, we, we still have the paradigm where people think they go to school to learn enough to be in society functional. We don't go to school with the idea that this is the beginning or not even the beginning. This is another phase of the life experience of learning and growing continuously. And things are changing and you're adapting and you're contributing and you're part of this dynamic. And it's in part because we don't live in communities anymore. So it used to be the community gave you that sense of being and contributing. Now we're a world community and we need to think in different ways of how we interact and satisfy ourselves. But science, science is what is changing the world and what can change the world. So I really think we need to have make everybody feel that this is something they can enjoy like music. It is like music or any other art creative form. It's a creative form. Some people are better at one part of it than another. We all accept that, but it's not something that is over when you leave school or delegated to be advanced through a very tiny group of weird people. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, the first scientists, the one we know best, the legends, right, were, were artists as they were scientists. I think there's a there's an artist in all scientists. And now more and more, we need all these different types and specialists to come together to solve the complexity of the problem, right? The problems are getting so Baroque. Um, but not too Baroque for you to take another swing at it. You're talking like you're at the end of your career, Dr. Eves. I, I know you probably got three or four papers in press. I can't wait to read those. Thank you so much, though, for sharing uh, your little walk through history and your perspective for our 200th episode. This has been really, really a treat for us. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode, our special by stem Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com slash newsletter before September 30th for a chance to win one of the three Stem Cell Podcast Bluetooth speakers. Very good audio fidelity on those. I can attest to that. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Guys, don't wait for the tri-stemtennial. Get on it now and listen to the next episode. We're coming back to you in two weeks. It's going to be a good one. Thanks for listening to this one.